Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is July 28th, 2022, and I'm joined today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and by new IPI research fellow, Professor Daniel Ogden. And today we're going to talk about how we are living in very interesting times, geopolitically speaking, these days. So, uh, Dan, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and do sort of just a brief bio, tell us who you are and what you do. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the invite to be on this podcast. Uh, We do, in fact, live in interesting times, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But again, um, I am a lecturer at Baylor University. I actually teach courses in both the political science department and the business school, a little bit unusual, but the tie between those two departments is my focus on international affairs. And so in the political science department, I teach courses, international politics, international political economics, international law. And in the business school, I teach uh, courses on global trade compliance, including in a new online MBA program we have at Baylor called Global Trade Supply Chain Management. And it's it's actually interesting because a lot of the subject matter I deal with in all these courses is related to each other. But it, I just come at from a different angle. So when I talk about international politics, for example, last term, the Ukraine war started in the middle of the term. Obviously, the international political system is relevant, but also there's international law aspects to that in terms of the legality of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as uh, uh, whether war crimes committed. And then, of course, but that also bleeds over into my class in global trade compliance, because there I talk about to the importance of complying with U.S. trade regulations, including the sanctions that were put on Russia. So it's I have a very interesting uh, teaching environment at Baylor in that I have the opportunity to talk about a lot of international issues uh, that have commonalities to them, but from different perspectives. Sure. Uh, sure. And, my, and, and my background, just real quick, is, is I'm an attorney. I practice law in the Dallas area, international trade, for about... 30 years, but I've always wanted to go back and start teaching and had the opportunity to do that a few years ago. Cool. Sounds wonderful. Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, You mentioned Ukraine. Let's start there. Let's start with Ukraine and Russia. You know, there may have been a time when huge events were going on on the other side of the planet, but they were isolated and didn't affect anybody else, but that's no longer the case. Uh, We're dealing with high uh, oil and gas prices in the United States because of the war uh, just from a political standpoint, it was sort of jaw-dropping to see uh, a country just simply decide to invade and conquer another country, which is something we haven't seen very much of since World War II. Um, and it's been actually sort of fascinating to see Russia actually struggling. Uh, I think everyone thought Russia would roll over Ukraine, or at least those of us who are amateurs thought that Russia would roll over Ukraine. The most recent reports I'm seeing is that Ukraine is actually starting counteroffensives. And that Russia is actually on the defensive in many ways. Uh, you wrote, you recently wrote a short paper for us on sort of the implications of the Russia and Ukraine war, sort of sort of for the global order. Uh, and again, as a non-specialist, it seems to me that we don't want to live in a world uh, where a major company can just a major country can just decide they want to roll over one of their neighbors, and everyone sits by and and, and lets it happen. 
And in fact, that's not what's going on because Ukraine is being aided by a lot of countries, but everyone's aware of the complexity of actually engaging directly on Ukraine's behalf. Right. And that is, of course, uh, there. there's the Ukraine situation in uh, in Eastern Europe has been an issue for, for several years now. It really kind of started when the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, one of the things I think that Putin, I've never really, never really heard discussion of this, but to really understand kind of what's going on there, you really have to go back in history. You can go back way back, which we won't talk about, but the more recent history is when the Soviet Union was created after the fall of the Tsarist Russia, one of the issues was, you know, Russia had this huge empire and it had a lot of different peoples in the empire, a lot of ethnic nationalities. For example, Poland was actually in the Russian empire. They achieved their independence after World War One. But when the Bolsheviks took over, there was this controversy among the Bolsheviks called the nationalities questions. And so one of the issues was, well, for these other parts of the Russian empire where Russia itself is not, you know, the ethnic majority uh are, are we going to just have a new communist state, which the whole thing is just one big country? Are these other sta- other areas going to be independent states, et cetera? And so they came up with this solution where they would have what called Soviet socialist republics. Ukraine is one of them, uh, you know, Kazakhstan, Belarus, which is a term for white Russia, et cetera. And so you, you had this structure where, of course, well, Moscow and the Communist Party was the central primary authority, and that kept it all together. Well, when the Communist Party basically lost its legitimacy and its power in the early 90s under Gorbachev, and then Yeltsin came into power, almost in all these other so-called independent states said, hey, you know, we're actually, we're a state, we're actually going to assert our independence now. We're not going to be part of Russia anymore. So Georgia, Desert, Ukraine, all these states in the central, all the stands, we call them, in Central Asia, they all became independent states. And so one of the concerns in the early 90s, mid-90s after this occurred, is that the Soviet nuclear weapons had been put all over the Soviet Union. So Ukraine had a bunch of nukes there. And so the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine came to an agreement that that uh, Ukraine would surrender its nukes, and in return, that Russia and U.S. would guarantee its independence. Of course, Putin at this time hadn't even come to power yet. This is a deal when Yeltsin was still president. So when Putin comes prime minister and eventually president, well, what does he want to do? He wants to recreate the Russian Empire. And I think Putin probably, if he was honest with you, would be really irritated and even angry at Lenin for ever allowing these other Soviet socialist republics a nominal form of independence because if it had all been part of the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union wouldn't have an independent Ukraine today. So the irony is that this, the Soviet Communist Party kind of, uh, as long as it was in power, you would have just one state, but it kind of created its own demise. And so Putin's whole goal is really to create the Russian Empire. And as I mentioned in my article, he wants to become what is called an international relations theory as a hegemon. And in fact, it's just interesting today that uh, the Soviet, or the Soviet, it's hard to get away from that term, the uh, Russian foreign minister actually was meeting with the Chinese foreign minister in Uzbekistan and Lavrov, Russian foreign minister. He said, we're moving to a quote unquote multipolar world 
where where Russia sees itself as one of the hegemons along with the United States and of course this fairly new hegemon China which we'll talk more about in a minute so this is why the situation in Ukraine isn't just it certainly is about now the war crimes uh you know economic sanctions but the larger picture which I tried to talk about in my paper was the effect upon the international system and particularly if Russia and China were able to really cement an alliance that that would be very dangerous to US interests however the war has certainly had a negative effect on Russia not just in economic terms that's that remains to be seen but certainly military terms they've expended a lot of military resources and quite frankly they haven't really got a whole lot to show for it uh for a lot of various reasons so yeah that's that's what's kind of going on in Ukraine today Ukraine is starting to fight back you know they've been getting support from the US and western allies but it's been somewhat slow and it's also very difficult to resupply them in the middle of war that's part of the problems that that we face and dan i wonder if we're not moving back to something we saw earlier in 1949 when china formally um, when the communist party finally took over china uh, they were, of course, they had the border with Russia and they were working well with the Soviet Union for a while. And those uh, one of the things that sometimes happen when strong men are friends, they, one of them decides they they may be a little stronger and, and uh, maybe want to have some uh, take over one of the others. But it, relations started getting a little rough there towards the end of Mao's uh, life. And uh, that's when Henry Kissinger and uh, Richard Nixon reached out to them. And they had that meeting in 1972, if I remember right, when Nixon went to China. He got a lot of pushback from that. But eventually, De- Deng Xiaoping comes in and, and you've got what looks like a China that might be reforming, still has a lot of issues, but seemingly opening up. You could sort of hope for the best. Uh, but now we seem to, and, and so at that point, Russia and China sort of have relationships, and they're against Russia. But now it looks like we're moving back to Russia and China against the U.S., sort of as we were seeing back in 1949. Well, it's interesting. That also has, as everything does, of course, an interesting history. It's real quick. When the Communist Party took over in China and defeated the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan, uh, at that point, Stalin was still alive and he was the acknowledged leader of the worldwide communist movement. And so Mao was willing to play second fiddle to Stalin. When he died, in particular when Khrushchev came to power and they had the quote-unquote de-Stalinization of Russia, uh, Mao didn't particularly like that. And so what happened is China and Russia started drifting farther apart uh, even though in the Korean War, of course, Stalin was still alive at the very beginning of that, China actually was engaged in undeclared war with the United States. U.S. soldiers actually fought Chinese soldiers. A lot of people don't realize that. But uh, anyway, uh, so but what happened after the Vietnam War, China and Vietnam actually had their own little war, and China decided to assert their own independence and reach out to the United States. But one area, and, and so, of course, as you mentioned, Deng Xiaoping came to power and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia really lost its status as a superpower. And there for about 20, 25 years, the U.S. was the world's so hegemon, in spite of the fact that uh, people like uh, uh, Madeleine Albright didn't like that. She one time said the United States shouldn't be the world's sole superpower. It's dangerous. Well, it's not dangerous to the U.S. And we didn't invade any other countries uh, during that time. So I don't see how it was really dangerous. But in any event, uh, uh, with China coming 
now with its accession to WTO, using that to gain economic power, which helps military engaged in intellectual property theft, trade secret theft, everything else. Now we see this coalescing again in Russia and China. But it is interesting. Uh, these things are never static. That's what makes international relations fascinating, geopolitics fascinating, because it's always a dynamic area. You now have a lot of the what are called the Central Asian republics. In other words, these were parts of the Soviet Union. They became independent. All the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Tajikistan, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they, they are nominally allies of Russia, but, you know, they're also thinking, if Russia is doing this to Ukraine, are we next? Because fact of the matter is, Putin does want to recreate the Russian empire, which means he wants to have authority, at least a nominal authority like he has over Belarus, if not actual authority, uh, over the Central Asian Republic. So there was just an article recently in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, Kazakhstan is starting to think about this as well. And so not only is this an issue in regards to these, these Central Asian republics in regard to Russia, but also it's the issue with China, because there are a lot of natural resources, oil and gas in these regions. China has been moving assertively now for several years to strengthen its relationship with these republics, in part because China doesn't have a lot of natural energy resources. And in, in, in the past, Putin has basically told China, that's our backyard, stay away. But now since he wants to have this alliance with China, he's not quite going down that road. But it, what's, the final thing that's interesting, during the Cold War days, Russia was the big brother, China's a little brother. Today, it's really flipped. Yes, China's yes. really the big brother. And that's a dynamic worth watching. So you, you raised a point about something else here. So with Ukraine, the U.S. has been outraged at uh, at the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And we've sent a, we're sending a lot of resources. We've got allies working with us and so forth. Uh, but it, it raises a question. There's a there's a, a sentiment in the United States. That I don't think it's huge, but along the lines of why are we worried about Ukraine? That's way over there. It's a long ways away from us. They're they're part that, you know, they haven't done much for us. Uh, why are we even involved in that? But so let me ask you this question. Is it because of the resources? Is it because we don't want Russia getting more territory, given the fact that it's already trying to expand territory? Uh, if, if, if and I raise this up because if Russia were to invade Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, or something of that nature, I don't know if we would be uh, as upset as with uh, them invading Ukraine. Is it something about Ukraine that has sparked something, or is it just generally us wanting to push back against Russia over expansion? Well, that, that that's a great question. I think there's a lot of answers in the interest of time. I won't explore all of them. However, I think at this point, the reality is they have invaded Ukraine, and and that has shocked the West because, as Tom mentioned a minute ago, we haven't seen a war in Europe like this. Now, there's been some people have claimed from the left and ridiculously, oh, we're only helping Ukraine because they're white Europeans. That's utterly absurd. Uh, if now, do the does the U.S. have a greater national interest in seeing Ukraine independent versus? one of these Central Asian republics, probably so, just because Ukraine is on the border of NATO countries. So if, this, if Russia was going to Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, 
particularly with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan that occurred several months ago, there wouldn't be as much of a geostrategic threat to the U.S. per se. Plus, it might actually cause some tension between Russia and China. Russia and China aren't rivals in Ukraine. They are in Central Asia. And so anything, I would say, that causes a a uh, uh, somewhat of a break between Russia and China is actually in the U.S. national interest. But I think it's I think it's because Ukraine is right next to, to NATO countries, and and uh, Putin I think is more concerned. And this actually goes back to historically, Russia has always been wanting to be seen as a European power. Central Asia is kind of a backwater, but I think Putin, quite frankly, is more interested in incorporating Ukraine. And then certainly the three Baltic republics of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia back into the Russian Empire. Poland could be next. I mean, it's just, I think Putin's attention is focused west rather than east in terms of actual incorporation. I think with the Central Asian republics, if he can kind of just cajole them at this point, he's probably happy with that. But that that is a great question, and it's one that that we need to consider. Dan, it seems to me that Ukraine is sort of in a similar situation with Turkey in that they're both like positioned in in uh, it in between rivals. You know, uh, Ukraine's got this issue of Russia on one side and NATO on the other side. Uh, Turkey has a similar situation, and so both Turkey and Ukraine have always been complicated from a foreign policy standpoint for that reason. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of how you see the Ukraine situation playing out. I mean, Russia has a history of being willing to engage in long-term, brutal military conflicts. On the other hand, uh, they don't have a very large economy. They don't have a productive economy. And, you know, you can easily see Russia getting to the point where it's harder and harder to come up with both men and materiel. Well, one of... Uh, one of Russia's long-term historical goals, and by the way, even when they're the Soviet Union, of course, they were a communist party, but nevertheless, when it comes to the behavior of states, the international system, there's very similar behavior, whether that's a communist system or some other type of system. So one of Russia's long-term goals, as Henry Kissinger brilliantly explains in his book, Diplomacy, which, by the way, I would highly recommend as the best book on international relations I've ever, ever read. Anyway, he talks about Russia's always had this desire to expand outward. And one of the places they've always wanted to expand is to the Mediterranean, because the the, the, uh, Baltic Sea, of course, and the ports that Russia has in that area in the wintertime are frozen. They're not warm water ports. And so Russia always had an historical conflict with the Ottoman Empire. That's what the Crimean War is all about. So Russia... In the Crimean War was able to, to, you know, defending their interests in Crimea was important. And they've always wanted to have a port actually at the Dardanelles, which is where the Black Sea and it's Mediterranean. So Russia and Turkey now, of course, uh, which took over from the Ottoman Empire as a, just a separate state, uh, have, have, have had these, these dueling interests. Well, in order for Russia to expand southward, to, to have access to the Mediterranean where Ukraine's in the way. Now, and we're talking about modern-day Russia now. And so that's the reason uh, they uh, we had the war in 2014 when they took over Crimea, because they, they always wanted to have a Black Sea 
and then eventually Mediterranean port. Now, Turkey, of course, it, it is, of course, a NATO ally, but Erdogan certainly marches to his own tune. Uh, and he is uh, he, he sees himself as a modern day uh, sultan, an Ottoman sultan. He, he has, you know, it's quite an interesting relationship that that he has with Putin. In some areas, they're friends. In other areas, they're, they're adversaries. For example, in Syria, they back different components in the Syrian civil war. And then Turkey's also had an interest relationship with Ukraine. So I don't think, you know, um, when Erdogan looks at his country's interests, there's some areas where Russia's interests coalesce. But in terms of Russia actually taking over Ukraine, I don't think Erdogan really is in favor of that. Not because as a NATO, member of NATO, he doesn't really care about that, but, but it would threaten Turkey's interests. Uh, and so who knows how that's going to play out. That's just another one of the many variables we have in terms of the Ukrainian war. Is that whole relationship? Turkey. Dan, you mentioned the multipolar aspect of this, and I'm wondering if we're not moving back to a situation because we've seen a, a number of countries either embrace or at least not not reject Russia for their invasion of Ukraine and, and not only China uh, working with them, but uh, India, which was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, and of course, China is reaching out to more countries and as uh, Russia and Africa and others. I'm wondering if we're going to get to a situation where you do you have essentially, effectively, a bipolar world where you're either in the Russian-slash-China alignment or you're in the U.S.-slash-European alignment with the third, which we used to have, the non-aligned countries that that were trying to stay apart from both of them, and sometimes with some difficulty. But are we, are we coming back to a situation in which we have essentially a bipolar a division uh, among world powers that's different than what we might have thought before. Yeah, I think we are moving in that direction. In the article I wrote for IPI, I talk about uh, will it be a multipolar world or will it be what I call a hybrid bipolar. Uh, back in the 19th century, Europe truly had a multipolar world uh, and and even prior to that point. But the reason I called it my article a kind of a hybrid bipolar is where if, if you have a tripolar world of three hegemons, U.S., Russia, China, but two of those hegemons get together and gang up on the third, then it's not so much a multipolar world because in a multipolar world, each state, these are three or more hegemons, are all presumably going after their own interests. And so sometimes you may have different alliances, but always shifting. But in what I would call a hybrid bipolar world, you have two hegemons kind of gang up. Now, that doesn't mean that Russia and China don't have some different interests. They do. But I think that's one of the dangers we move towards there. Uh, by the way, the non-aligned movement was never really non-aligned. That was just uh, very facetious in nature uh, because India was, uh, which saw itself as the leader of the so-called non-aligned movement. And by the way, China did as well. India was a longtime ally of, of the Soviet Union. One of the reasons I think that India and some other states have not uh, condemned the Ukraine invasion, at least uh, in the vote of the U.N., uh, they uh, abstained is they see, saw the chance of some cheap Russian oil because, of course, with Russia's oil being cut off to the United States and the EU countries, Russia has to find buyers. And th- they've been offering discounts around $20 a barrel. 
And for a country like India, which is a growing country, India is either the world's most populous nation or soon will be uh, at some point very quickly they're going to surpass China. They, they are a big energy consumer. Uh, of course, China also has been buying oil from Russia and then some of these other countries as well. Um, of course, then we can bring in the dynamic of OPEC and the whole OPEC plus. And of course, uh, during the Trump administration, Saudi, uh, the, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia had very good relations under the Biden administration. It's been very uh, cold, even with Biden's recent trip to uh, Saudi Arabia. So the the clout the U.S. has had with Saudi during this administration as opposed to the previous administration. I think under the previous administration, if Trump had asked the Saudis to, to increase production or cut prices, they probably would have done so. They haven't done so. Of course, what they're saying now is, well, you know, we have OPEC plus, Russia is basically a partner, we can't just act independently. Believe me, the Saudis have never allowed anybody to compromise their independence of what they want to do. And so it hasn't been because of OPEC plus that they haven't really increased production. It's because they just consider an interest right now, I think, to have a high oil price. And so, yes, these other countries outside of Europe and some traditional allies such as Australia, Japan, South Korea, they, they've kind of tried to, they've tried to play this neutral thing uh, I think a lot of it has to do this neutral stance because of the, their need for energy and, and the ones that aren't energy producers. So that's interesting. You know, on the other hand, and again, this is what makes international politics, geopolitics so fascinating. India is part of what's called the Quad with the United States, Austria, and Japan. So these countries have, you know, and sometimes you'll have them in different parts of the world. They'll be more like a partner. And other, and other issues, they're not. They're more neutral. And, and that's, what makes, that, that's what makes foreign policy such a difficult subject. You have to balance all these different interests that different countries have and try to figure out what makes sense from the perspective of your own national interests. Well, Dan, as we said, uh, these are very interesting times from a geopolitical standpoint, and I think that conversation proves it. We'll have to do another episode soon on uh, China and Taiwan and all of those issues, uh, but I don't think we'd be doing them justice if we tried to squeeze them into this one. So, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. And we would invite all of you out there who are listening to check out our website at ipi.org and to sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.